Hey, I'm Adam Alloy, and this is My Kind of Folks. This is my show where I take deep dives into topics that I find fascinating with people who are as knowledgeable as they are inspiring. My guest tonight, Raphael Bob Waxberg. Raphael is the creator of the Netflix show Bojack Horseman. He's also one of the minds behind Undone. He's one of the executive producers of Tuga and Birdie. And he's found the time between all that to write and publish a book of short stories called Someone Who Will Love You in All Your Damaged Glory. I'm just going to start out a little by talking about how your upbringing influenced your creative evolution. When you were a little kid, did you see yourself becoming a writer? Uh, no. I, well, I, I don't know if I knew that a writer was a thing when I was a little kid. I mean, I guess I must have because I liked reading books. But I, you know, I wasn't thinking about that, like the TV shows were, were made by writers or that there were people writing TV shows. I, I didn't really think of myself as a writer until I got to college, even though in high school, I wrote a short play uh, that, that we performed my senior year. But I, I really didn't think of myself as a writer. I just thought, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of things. And then when I got to college, I knew I wanted to be a theater major and I had to pick a concentration of acting or playwriting. And I remember my freshman year that at Bard College where I went, that if you wanted to be an acting major for your senior project, you had to act in a play and write a huge like paper about you know, theater theory and acting. And if you wanted to be a playwriting major, all you had to do was write a play. And I thought that sounds much easier. I'm just going to do that. Uh, but then, of course, by the time I was a senior, I also had to write a paper. They changed the rules. Oh, they made you write a paper, too? I did have to write, yes. It ended up being a very academic experience. But it's very funny to me that the reason I went into writing was to avoid more writing. <laughs> I thought there'd be less writing if I became a writer than if I became an actor. Uh, so counterintuitive. They got the last laugh on me because now my career is full of writing. All I've been doing is writing for the last 10 years. Yeah, and if you'd, if you'd acted, then you would have only had to write that one paper. I know, I would have been done with it. I would have been free. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Your um, mom and grandmother, uh, who are... Ellen Bob and Shirley Bob owned a Jewish bookstore, Bob and Bob. And this uh, was in our hometown of Palo Alto. And this place is just amazing. You know, if you wanted to get uh, Kiddush cups for like a bar mitzvah, you'd go into Bob and Bob. If you wanted to get candles and dreidels for Hanukkah, you'd go into Bob and Bob. Growing up in that kind of environment, did your parents kind of instill you with a respect for reading and the arts? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> like, I mean, it's, you know, I would say the normal amount, but it's hard to know. All the fish who swim in the water, they don't know what water is, right? I don't know what to compare it to. I would say, yes, I grew up with an appreciation for the arts. I don't know if that was particularly because my mother owned a bookstore, but maybe. I mean, yeah, I used to like to, you know, go into the bookstore and just, you know, look at the shelves and, and think about all the different stories in them. My first job was actually as a clerk in Bob and Bob. A lot of Jewish kids had their first job working as a, a clerk in that store. What was your What was your specialty in the store? You know, Shirley told me that I was the best vacuumer that they'd ever had in the store. I was just so good, <laughs> <laughs> so good at cleaning the That's floors. Great. <laughs> well, Shirley Bob never gives a compliment she doesn't mean, so that you earned that title. Yeah. Right. 
I remember that one day, you know, I was in a play as like an extra. So I told Shirley I had to go to play practice Mm -hmm. and she corrected me and she was like, you mean play rehearsal? So (laughs) (laughs) Vacuum up your language, young man. (laughs) Vacuum up your language. You were um, pretty involved with uh, the gun theater when you were younger? Yeah. So the gun was our high school. So before that, I did like Palo Alto Children's Theater, which is like, you know, community kids theater. And then when I got into high school, I, I really did a lot of plays. Um, and that was a was a, a nice little home for me, that theater. I mean, I, I felt like generally in, in middle school and high school, I didn't quite know who I was or what I was supposed to be doing or how I was supposed to talk to other people. Yeah, very common experience. <laughs> yeah, in the world of drama, things kind of made sense to me. And I, I think that is pretty common that people kind of find their clicks or their niches and you kind of find your speed. Uh, and that definitely happened to me with Theater at Gun. And that's where I became good friends with Lisa Hanawalt, who then I collaborated with on BoJack and later on Two Gun Birdie. That's so beautiful that someone that you met that young is still a very vibrant creative partner. Yeah, I'm very happy about that. That was intentional. I mean, when I was pitching shows around Los Angeles when I first moved down here, you know, one of my thoughts in the back of my head was, can I pitch something that would allow me to work with Lisa? Because she's an incredible artist. You mentioned that you wrote a play for your senior year at Gunn? At Gunn, every spring, they do student-directed one-acts, which is an evening of usually five or six short plays directed by the students themselves. And most years, at least when I was there, most years, one of those student-directed one-acts would also be student-written. Most of the the plays would be existing one-acts, by like Christopher Durang or David Ives or somebody like that. And then you'd have one where the students wrote them themselves. And so my senior year, I decided that I wanted to write a one act uh, myself because my junior year I had directed uh, a play. And actually my senior year, I also directed another play. And so I thought, I want to try my hand at writing one. And I decided to write a a one act musical with my friend Steve Majora who is a brilliant uh, musician. So we, we wrote this, this 25 minute musical with I think like five or six songs in it. And, uh, and we staged it as a part of the One Act Festival. Awesome. Do you remember what that was about? Yes, it was called The Musical Misadventures of Flungus the Utter Boy. And oh, it was about Flungus! A, a boy, yeah, <laughs> Flungus. It was about a boy who had udders. <laughs> and it was about his first day of school. And he was trying to hide the fact that he had udders. And his catchphrase was, I'm a boy, not a cow. Um, And he falls in love with a girl. And then he gets in a big fight with the school bully. And the bully like lifts his shirt and everyone sees his udders. And he's really sad and embarrassed. But then it turns out the girl has udders too, for reasons that are never explained. Um, And they have a, a nice song together and they end up very happy. You know, that sounds utterly unbelievable. It's exactly what it was. It's a really great opportunity that the theater department at our school let so many students have creative freedom. Yeah, definitely. It was very encouraging. I mean, Mr. Shelby was a, a, a great teacher, very encouraging. And, and, the, and the fact that we had these opportunities to create things and stage them ourselves and not necessarily, you know, wait to be cast or wait to be given permission to do things. It just had a really creative, energetic spirit to that department. And I think that really stayed with me. Yeah, totally. I think Shelby is probably the the best educator that I had at Gunn, at least. He's a very inspiring guy. Kind of has this tough love thing sometimes, too. Uh, I really drew a lot from him. So 
After you finish at Gunn, you get accepted into Bard College. Prior to doing this this interview, I'd never heard of Bard. <laughs> yeah, not a lot of people have, it turns out. It's a, it's a real school. I did some research into it, and it has like some pretty incredible alumni. Like me. <laughs> yeah, like you yes. uh, and Adam Conover. You have Steely Dan, um, Chevy Chase. You have uh, the Sherman brothers who wrote the music for The Jungle Book. Um, you got like Christopher Guest mm. who directed Spinal Tap. Um, you had like uh, yeah. Adam Yach from the Beastie Boys. And my personal hero, Ronan Farrow, went to Bard as well. Yes. Although I don't know if all those people are alum of Bard because I think some of them did not graduate or transferred away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ronan Farrow probably graduated, I would guess. Yeah, uh, but but a lot of people who go to Bard don't necessarily finish because that's the type of people that Bard attracts is people who who uh, follow their own paths, sometimes away from Bard. <laughs> what was going to college there like? Uh, it was cool, man. <laughs> I mean, it was it was out in the woods. It was the other side of the country from where I grew up. So it felt very foreign, very removed. I liked it. I thought it was a good school for me. Then after Bard, I, I moved down to, to New York City and then I moved to LA. So I, I've been living in cities ever since. So I, I'm really grateful to have that four years where I was out in the woods, you know, on the side of a river and I could kind of explore. And it felt very isolated, I think in a good way. And it felt like this is a place to experiment and follow your muse and create things. You know, I think the overwhelming artistic philosophy was very avant-garde and experimental. It was really encouraged to not necessarily do things that were typical or mainstream, but to kind of, you know, crawl into the insides of your own brain and be as weird as you wanted to be. So it was a really great formative experience for me. Yeah, that sounds really incredible. Do you think that you'd be the artist you are today without having that kind of liberal arts education? No. Well, I, I mean, I wouldn't be the artist I am today if anything was different. I mean, you know, we are all just the, the accumulation of our experiences and influences. So, I mean, you could, you know, just move me a half centimeter to the left on any given day and I'd be a completely different person, probably. Well, I don't know about that. Would I be a completely different person? I'd be a slightly different person. I totally feel you. You know, if I'm if I'm looking back at my life, I can completely trace the trail of events that have led to wherever I am. And a lot of times I think if right. this or that had happened just a little bit differently, then, you know, it could have completely changed the direction of my life. Like I, I once had a car that I just bought, like break down in uh, the middle of nowhere. And that dramatically affected the direction of my life for like the next eight months. It ended up being a really positive wow. experience. Where did you break down? I broke down in the South Island of New Zealand and I was living out of my van at that point in time. And it directly led me to meeting someone who introduced me to someone else that I ended up living with that person four or five months. And that person became my creative partner. One of my best friends. Amazing. One of the best things that ever happened to me is that that car broke down, even though it sucked at the time. Uh, and you can't, you can't trace that map while it's happening. All you can do is look back and kind of go, oh, that led to this and that led to that. And you have no idea if your car hadn't broken down, you'd be living a very different life. And, and you might be like, oh, thank God my car didn't break down that day because then I never would have met this person and been doing this thing. You know what I mean? Totally. Does Bart do a lot of like hands-on mentorship with students? What do you mean by that? 
Tell me more about about what you mean by hands-on mentorship. So I went to a fairly large school. I went to a school with 40,000 students and a lot of the classes I was in probably had, you know, maybe 200 people in the class. So I didn't get that much personalized attention from my professors when I was in like a like TA groups or something like that. If I'd written like a short story or if I'd written a play or something like that, then I would get some notes from like the TA, but I, I didn't have much of a relationship, like a, like a back and forth relationship with my educators. I see. Yes, I would say my experience was not like that. My, you know, Bard had very small classes. My, you know, my graduating year at Bard, I was one of two playwriting majors. So we got a lot of individual attention from our, our playwriting professor, Chiori Miyagawa. But also I, I, I did feel like we were kind of on our own, sink or swim. No one was going to like help me mm-hmm. if I if I was struggling. Totally. I don't know. Hmm. I'm sure they were paying closer attention to me than I realized. You know, like you know that thing where it's like a baby on a construction site, and the baby is just kind of like wandering from beam to beam, mm. and meanwhile there's these adults like running around frantically trying to keep the baby safe, and the baby has no idea the danger that it just narrowly avoided because of these adults moving beams underneath him. I think maybe I was like that in college that I thought like, oh, here I go, just kind of living my life. And meanwhile, I was surrounded by people in hard hats, uh, gradually just correcting me and moving me and protecting me in ways that I didn't realize. Maybe that's my whole life. I'm I'm not 100% sure. Um, So, (laughs) oh, that's... That's so funny. So how many plays did you write uh, when you were borrowed? And um, are you proud of a lot of your work? Was some of it kind of like substandard? I mean, compared to what? I mean, as a as a college student, yeah, I think it, I wrote some good some good things. I mean, I don't think any of it is stuff that I would want to dust off now and, and, and put on its feet. You know, maybe one or two of those things I would I could heavily revise into something else. But I, I felt at the time that I was doing good work. Mm. I mean, I, I, I did feel like, oh, no, I'm where I'm supposed to be. I didn't feel like, how do you do this? I don't know. I felt like, yeah, this, this makes sense to me. And I, I definitely feel I grew over the course of those four years. And, and the plays I was writing my senior year were much more sophisticated and interesting than the plays I was writing my freshman year. But I also feel like I was doing a lot of other stuff in college that informed my writing at the same time. So I was, you know, I was writing these plays, but I was also keeping a blog and I was, you know, writing blog entries. I don't know if you call them short essays, but I was writing about my life and I was really kind of noticing what writing seemed to resonate with people and what kind of went ignored. And I think I internalized a lot of ideas about how am I communicating what I'm feeling today? Or how am I describing what happened? Or are there more fun ways to write about this than just you know paragraph, paragraph, paragraph? Are there different formats or different ways to explain what I'm thinking or feeling? And so I think that was really helpful. And then I was also uh, in this sketch comedy group on campus called Old English. Um, and that really influenced my writing a lot to be thinking about comedy all the time and jokes and, you know, how do we keep this funny and interesting for three, four, seven, ten minutes. At the time, all these writing felt very separate from each other. But then I think after I graduated, I, I started finding ways to combine them. Yeah, to sort of have crossovers and maybe some experiments and format that you did when you were writing blogs would come and inform like a like a later work. Old English wasn't like improv. It was all kind of pre-written sketches? Well, we, we did improv too, but we were never very good at the improv. We, we <laughs> gradually phased out the improv because it felt like that was not our forte as a group. It was pre-written live sketches and then also videos. We would present at shows and then put on the internet. 
it was very early in the time of internet videos. And so I think we were very lucky in that we kind of put some stuff up uh, that was very unsophisticated comedy-wise and felt like a college sketch comedy group. But because not a lot of other people were putting videos on the internet, they got more attention than I think they would if you just put your comedy group's videos on the internet now. That we we earned a little bit of a following. There was kind of a an early adapter period in what what would this be like the the mid 2000s well it started in the early 2000s our first videos went up in like early 2003 which is you know two years before youtube existed whoa (laughs) if you can imagine such a time they went videos on the internet before youtube was a thing I know YouTube did not invent uh, videos on the internet. I, I can never remember a time in my life where there was not YouTube. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, we would host these like very <laughs> chunky, awkwardly formatted QuickTime videos on the Bard College server. And I remember one day we crashed the server <laughs> because these videos were so big and people from all over the country were like coming to watch our videos. And so internet was down on campus for the whole campus for like a couple days. And everyone was just like fucking old English. But uh, we definitely got called into an office and we're told that we need to find ways to uh, make our videos take up less space. The other person that um, I know of that was in old English is uh, Adam Conover, who's super super funny yeah he's a very funny guy he's the host of the show adam ruins everything he's the titular adam who ruins everything that show kind of picked up the torch of uh, penn and teller's bullshit like that was a show i really oh, yeah. liked when when i was younger where they just broke down what they thought was bullshit adam totally has a different way of doing it but uh very much in the same vein no i know that show is a big influence on him he loved that show yeah, it's a it's a big influence on me too. Like a lot of the attitudes and opinions that I still hold to this day, I have because I watched bullshit when I was like twelve or thirteen. Adam's show is a little more optimistic than bullshit was. I think the Penn and Teller show there's like a skepticism to it and like a cynicism to it that I think is important to you know to to come at anything with like a fair amount of skepticism and cynicism. But I think that can curdle sometimes. What I enjoy about Adam ruins everything, despite its title is that I actually think it is very positive and hopeful and encouraging about you know finding the truth. It's not about tearing down these myths that we believe. It's about, okay, that may not be true, but what can we do instead? What is true? And why, why is it helpful to find the truth? Not just, you know, look at this stupid thing that other people believe. Here's why that's dumb. And also, I think it has to do with kind of Adam's character versus Penn's character. Like Penn is very abrasive and kind of mean mm-hmm. about things. And Adam's like a very friendly, yeah. like, well, this is a better way of looking at this. And this is kind of like where you might be misinformed. But yeah, I do think it has a totally more optimistic slant to it. Right. And there's also, I mean, the show acknowledges how annoying Adam is to be around when he's in his know-it-all mode. Like That's part of the comedy of the show is that everyone's tired of him ruining everything. Whereas on Penn & Teller, bullshit, it was very much like, look at these cool dudes dispelling these rumors. I think that is, uh, if I could talk about my own work for a second, I I think that's something that I have noticed as well that I've tried to to, to move away from as well as kind of the, the cool dude dynamic. And that, you know, when I was starting BoJack Horseman, it was very important to me that you don't think he's a cool dude. You don't think he's a cool character. He's not aspirational in the way that I think maybe 
some people watching Californication or Mad Men might find those main characters as problematic and as difficult as they are. At the end of the day, they're cool and you kind of want to be them. You know, it was, it was really important to me that that's not the myth we're selling around Bojack, that you have sympathy for him, perhaps, and you can relate to him in some ways, but he, he's never an aspirational figure. Yeah, and that's a really commendable thing about Bojack, because those other shows glamorize a lot of really shitty behavior, but Bojack never never glamorizes anything. He's terrible. Well, we try not to. I mean, it's, it's open to interpretation. And also, he's just so fucking miserable. I think that has a, a lot to do with why people wouldn't want to aspire to be like him is just he completely hates himself and doesn't get any type of satisfaction out of anything that he does, despite having achieved a huge degree of success. So you are in the sketch comedy group at Bard, and then you move down to New York to try to do theater? I kind of moved down to New York just because that's where my friends were. I mean, the most immediate thing was I was going to continue doing sketch comedy with this group. I mean, the whole group moved to New York. And then I thought, yeah, while I'm there, maybe I'll, I'll try to write some plays or act in some plays or get an internship and, and kind of figure out what I should be doing. And I spent three years there kind of trying to figure it out. And eventually I realized I want to move to LA and, and be a TV writer. But there, there was a lot of experimentation going on in, in those three years in, in Brooklyn where I was living with Adam Conover. But mainly I was I was doing sketch comedy full time with four other guys. Awesome. The, the TV thing, it wasn't the goal from the beginning at all. It was just kind of something that you eventually gravitated into? Well, no. I mean, if TV was the goal, I would have moved to LA. I don't think I would have gone to New York. But I didn't know anything about TV. I mean, I, I never took a TV class in college. Uh, so I, 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 the world of TV and film felt so foreign to me. And whereas the world of theater felt like, okay, I, I don't quite understand this industry, but at least understand you know the art of it. So it didn't really occur to me that I could be doing TV. And then some of our, our sketches that we were making you know, got us into some meetings with some TV people. And we would develop like sketch shows and talk about like how, what kind of shows could we make around our sketch comedy. And as we were doing that, that's when I kind of realized like, oh, what I really want to be doing is longer form storytelling. I think I'm, I'm kind of tired of these sketches that have to be funny, that have to be short, that have to be disconnected. You know, I feel like that's kind of where my playwriting instinct kind of started to seep into my, my comedy instincts. And we had a manager as a group. And so I, I wrote up on my own a spec pilot of a TV show. You know, I, I remember I bought uh, a book on television script formatting that the other guys in the group were also reading because our scripts just looked like our closest approximations of what we thought a script looked like. So, okay, let's, what, what do scripts actually look like? And I got the software and I wrote a, a half hour pilot and I sent it to my manager and I said, what do you think? Is this anything? And he said, yeah, I, th I think this is something. And he gave me some notes on it and I continued to develop it. And then my manager's company had like a first look deal with Sony. So he sent my script to Sony and, and Sony really liked it. And they ended up shooting like a presentation out of my script. Wow. And at this point, I was kind of getting tired of New York anyway and looking for the next chapter. And so this felt like a great sign that I should move to L.A. and, and I should be writing television. That's pretty incredible. And it was just like your natural interest randomly led to that. Sketch comedy is very funny, but I can totally see what you're saying in that it might get a little bit old because of just the length 
of the sketches and the character development of the sketches. Yeah, I mean, it did for me. I mean, I, I think there are people who love it and can do it all their lives and never want to do anything else and, and God bless them. But I think in college, I got to do all sorts of things. I got to write my plays and I got to do my sketches. And to me, those things were always very separate is that I, I firmly believe that no sketches shouldn't make you feel things. Sketches should be funny and only funny and that plays should make you feel things. That if a play is just funny, that's not a play, that's a comedy sketch, which now I, I, I don't, I'm not as strict <laughs> about it as a viewer. Um, but at the time I felt very strongly and like annoyed when people in like my playwriting class would like write like a, a funny five minute scene and be like, this is a sketch, <laughs> this is not a play. Drawing the line in the sand. Right, but then when I wasn't able to do that, as but when, you know, when I wasn't going to a playwriting workshop every week, I missed that and I missed that kind of writing. Being a sketch com comedian alone wasn't filling my, I don't know, mm -hmm. cup, wasn't filling, whatever I needed to be filled, it wasn't doing it. Theater in of itself it's a bit of like a dying art form, in my opinion. It's a lot harder to make a living as a playwright or as someone that's just kind of performing in the theater. Tony Kushner said that when he had a Broadway play that he could pay the rent for, you know, however long Angels in America was on Broadway. But outside of that point wow. in his career, he always had to have other income streams in order to support himself. Yeah, that's rough. I mean, that's, I don't think I would have made it as a playwright. I don't think I, I had it in me. A lot of playwrights end up writing for television or movies because of that, or mm -hmm. they become professors or they, you know, they, they have to find some other way to make money. And that's, that's not why I wanted to become a TV writer, but that certainly is nice that it is a kind of writing that people actually pay you a, a living wage for. Mm -hmm. That you can support yourself doing. It's it's really interesting because theater is a super ancient tradition that has existed across the world, that has evolved sometimes in entirely siloed cultures. And I think that there is still, in some cities, a very vibrant, flowering theater scene and theater community. But generally speaking, if you're outside of one of those cities, it's a lot more difficult than it was 50 or 100 years ago. Yeah, but I, I don't know if I'd say it's phasing out. I, I mean, I think it was probably difficult 50 or 100 years ago, too. Like, I don't think there's ever been an incredibly lucrative time to be working in the theater. I mean, I think for some uh, it, it is, but those people are very lucky. What does theater mean? I mean, I think theater is such a, a loose term. Um, I mean, TV is theater. Movies are theater. TikTok videos are a kind of theater, right? You know, front-facing comedy bits on Twitter or Instagram are a kind of theater. So I think theater evolves and it will continue to evolve. And I think right now it's things certainly look bleak because we cannot gather in large crowds, but I, I, I don't think theater has ever really made sense. And yet it continues to thrive because on a certain level, it's the only thing that makes sense. That's not true. It's not the only thing that makes sense, but there's something very visceral about it and we want it and we need it. There's a reason people still do go to see plays because it, it means something to them. You know, I think stand-up comedy is a kind of theater. Concerts are a kind of theater. I, I think, yeah, I think theater as we know it is going to have to continue to change and evolve. 
and maybe it needs to be scaled down. The margins need to change for it to make sense, but there are a lot smarter people than I am who are currently wrestling with these issues and thinking about these things. Unfortunately, I mm. cannot really speak to the world of theater because I, I have left that world. I haven't known it since my days in New York, but I, I still love going to see a play. Yeah, me too, man. Uh, and I would love to write plays again and, and put one on because I think it is a, a different thing than these other theatrical experiences that are like theater. That is a really like poignant point you just brought up. I definitely never thought about kind of the evolution of theater or how other types of art mix in with it. But I mean, a lot of my favorite bands when I go see them have extremely extravagant stage shows going on while they're making the music and they are making it like a multimedia experience. Yeah, I mean, look, you go to you go to Disneyland and there's like Baloo the Bear just standing out there and he does like shtick, you know, like he gives you a hug and he waves and he's able to communicate very complicated concepts without actually saying anything. That's theater, that's storytelling. And I think we as humans are always going to be enchanted by that on some level. Also, I think at no point have uh, the circus arts been as accepted and as practiced as they are right now. And that that's a theatrical thing that is hugely mm -hmm. flourishing right now in a way that it never has. Like well, there you there's go. so many people that are involved with aerial silks or juggling or poi spinning in a, in a way that even 20 years ago, it was just not as common. I think the most rewarding shows that I've been to that are, you know, circus based or dance based or, you know, gymnastics or <laughs> based in some way find some way to, to create some narrative around that or tell a story. Mm -hmm. You know, I think the best figure skating I've ever seen tells some kind of story. And so that is theater. Telling stories through movement and dialogue is always going to be wanted in some way. So I'm, I'm, I'm not concerned for the art. I may be concerned for the business on a, a short-term level. I think it's going to take some, some very smart people to figure out how theater is going to evolve and how it's going to survive, but I have no doubt that it will. You know, the whole idea of storytelling, like humans craving storytelling, is a part of human nature. It's how conversations work. It's how we seek out our entertainment. It's even how we talk about like our own lives. That's mm -hmm. not going anywhere. It's just going to keep evolving. What, what's wonderful about theater, live theater, is that the barrier for entry is so much lower than like making a big budget movie and putting it in screens nationwide, right? That anybody, any kid can draw a square at a chalk on their front sidewalk and say, this is a stage now, I'm putting on a play, right? I mean, now the barrier for entry for making films is lower than ever before too. So that distinction is changing, that people have cameras on their phones and people can make short movies and, and do all sorts of things. But I, I do think that instinct to create is always going to find a way out, whether it is economically feasible or not. I think people are going to find ways to create and tell stories, even if it's on their balcony lit with flashlights from people in the neighboring fire escapes. You know what I mean? That's one reason why a lot of people love black box theater is that it's just so accessible. Right. Maybe not as flashy, but definitely really accessible. And if you're talking about accessibility, like we all have cameras in our pockets, there's a lot of people that are able to do extremely funny, extremely innovative things with basically no cost. TikTok, for instance, you can make super funny videos on TikTok with very low barrier to entry. And if you're good at it, then people will watch it.
And I also think the live theatrical experience is like nothing else. And I, I love the totally. feeling of sitting in a theater and really not knowing what's going to happen next. Like on a very literal sense, like there could be an earthquake. You know what I mean? Like this play <laughs> is not guaranteed that it's going to get to the end of it. Like you see a movie, like the movie's done, the movie's finished. It's going to be what it's going to be. But if you see a play, the performance you're seeing didn't exist before that night. And it's going to end at the end of this night, even if they you know, do the play again. The script is not the play. The play is, is what is happening right now. I remember I went to see a play, I think it was in Berkeley. It was a real uh, professional, polished production of a Tom Stoppard play. This was you know, performance number 20. And one of the actors forgot her lines in the middle of the play. And she was mortified. And it just, it went out of her head. And she couldn't get back on track. And like a stage manager had to feed her her lines. And there was that moment where she's looking out in the audience. And I've never felt anything like that while watching a movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it broke the play, but I was feeling things for this woman on a stage. I could never feel if it wasn't happening right now. And I think, you know, really good improv is exciting for that same reason. It's the ultimate push of that is that this art exists just now, it will never exist again. And you, the audience are a part of it. And I think that's, that's so cool and wonderful. Actors talk about performing plays, you know, that are, are have some maybe thematically difficult material and talking about how the play changes night by night. Um, there, there's an article I read in college about uh, the pillow man on Broadway and the actors talking about like sometimes certain lines get laughs, other times they get gasps. The show changes depending on how the audience feels about it. Mm -hmm. And that's really cool. That's that's really interesting. So that's something that I, I do miss about the live theater, that feeling of like we are we are creating this in this moment. I and I don't think anything will ever quite replace that. Yeah, I completely agree with you that the greatest thing about theater is every run is a different run and things happen differently every night and you're going to have different audiences yeah. interacting with them in a different way. This really goes down to like any performance art. I, I recently went to a show that had a guy throwing knives at his girlfriend. And, you know, this is their whole act. Okay. You know, he throws all of the knives and they land around her and she moves her leg and she bends over this way. And then the knives narrowly avoid her. And then she goes with an arrow and she fires the arrow with her feet at her boyfriend and same thing. Wow. But the guy missed the first knife throw. <gasps> and then he was completely out of it for the entire rest of the act. So the it entire rest yeah, of the act, he, he was throwing these knives that were just missing and bouncing off. And it was so, so gripping and so like, oh my God, what the fuck is about to happen here? Um, and that is nothing that they could anticipate. And that's not their act, but they still had to yeah. go through with it. And you can't manufacture it. And you can't manufacture it. And you can't manufacture the way that's going to affect an audience. And you're still thinking about that more than maybe you would be if you just saw an act where a guy threw knives and nearly missed his girlfriend and everything went perfectly. I think mistakes are wonderful. Yeah, they I, are. <laughs> I really do. I got my, my book of short stories. I remember the day that it came in the mail and they sent me like a whole box full of like 20 copies of this book. And it was like, I published a book. This is amazing. Like I, I did it. This is proof. I have a book in the world now and they're going to sell this in stores and thousands of people are going to buy this book. And I opened it up to a random page and I immediately noticed a mistake in the book. <laughs> like the first thing. Just like, like that's where your eye went to like, fuck, there's a typo. Yeah. 
And it's like, I don't know how many times I've read through this book and how many copy editors have looked through it. Somehow we all missed this one mistake. I thought that was wonderful. There's something nice about creating non-perfect art. Mm-hmm. It makes things feel more human and it makes things feel more real in a way. So I was, I was really happy to discover that. The knife thrower might have been less happy <laughs> when he was missing the knife throwing, but I, I was, I'm happy for a little bit of mistakes. Really, there is no books that don't have a typo somewhere. Like I, I was reading a book that was printed recently that's like 50 or 60 years old, and I noticed like two or three typos in this thing, and who knows how many editions wow. that's gone through, and it still hasn't been right. uh, corrected. So you get to LA, and you start pitching show ideas in LA. And one of these shows, the idea of it made me laugh so fucking hard. And you wanted to do a show about a a guillotine salesman during the French Revolution? Yeah. Well, that was specifically, so this company Tornante, I knew they were interested in animated ideas. So that's that's kind of where Bojack came from. And I, I went in with like five animated show ideas and one ended up being Bojack Horseman but another one was called The Good Times Are Killing Me and it was about a a, a guillotine salesman during the reign of terror in France and business was booming like things things were things were going really well for him business wise but it was still a hassle because he couldn't keep his family in order he had these three rebellious kids um, and he was a, a, a a single dad I think he was a widower not because of a guillotine. I think something else killed the wife. I don't remember what. Um, and then also the ghost of Marie Antoinette lived in the house as well. And she was always making trouble. So it was a, yeah, it was a real wacky family sitcom, kind of in the mode of like all in the family or family ties with these like intergenerational squabblings. But it was, it was set during the reign of terror. Yeah. So like a, like a cheesy sitcom, but the whole background of it is like they're executing nobles nonstop. Yeah. Well, I would, I would like to think it wouldn't be that cheesy. I think we could be uh, creative with it, too, and it would be a fun, uh, smart sitcom. But I don't know. I never made that joke. Who knows what it would have been. So a lot of executioners were kind of in this executioner class where they were completely separate from the rest of society. They could only marry other executioner families, and they couldn't touch people because they were kind of marked what? for life true? yeah yeah this is totally true and so you had okay various... i did zero research for this show so <laughs> this is fascinating to me yeah you had various different small executioner families and if you were like an executioner in leon and you wanted to marry off your daughter you'd have to find an executioner in marseille that had a son of about the same age. And when you went to go eat, no one would come and sit at your table. And that was that was just your life. You didn't have any other options. There was no way to get out of that. Wow. That's a lot more interesting than my idea. That would be that sounds like a great show. <laughs> uh you, you pitch Bojack and you've never worked in TV before. And then suddenly this show just has like so much momentum behind it. You just get the most incredible cast. You know, you get Will Arnett and you get Aaron Paul like fresh off of Breaking Bad. I don't know. It's, it seems like really surreal. What was what was that kind of like? You know, it's funny because, you know, again, you're talking about when you look backwards, the path is very clear, right? And for you to describe it as like we had all this momentum behind it, at the time, it felt like this thing was dead in the water. Like, I remember we were developing this thing for years before we even went to Netflix. And I remember very distinctly at some points 
feeling like, okay, Tornante hired me to write this pilot for them. There's no way this is ever going to be a show. I'll just write the thing, I'll get paid, and then I'll like move on to some other project. But it was never like a sure thing by by any means. So it was it was definitely a continuum of delightful surprises when like, oh, Will Arnett wants to be involved with it. Oh, uh, Netflix is making uh, TV shows now. Maybe maybe they would want us to make this show. Oh, they do. Oh, great. And there were lots of false starts too, where we thought like, oh, this network's gonna gonna do it. Like you said, I, I had zero TV experience really before I, I sold this to Tornante. But then in the course of developing it, I, I got other jobs. So I, I was staffed on a show called Save Me that lasted six episodes before it got canceled. And then I was staffed on a show called Us and Them, which lasted six episodes before it got canceled. But I remember while I was on Us and Them, it felt like BoJack was going to go somewhere. My manager called me and said, you got to tell your boss you need to you need to leave your show. So I, I went into his office and I had a really awkward conversation with him being like, I think I sold the show. I think I have to go soon. And he said, okay, well, thanks for letting us know. You know, we'll figure out a way to replace you. And then that deal fell apart and I didn't leave the show. And so I kind of had this awkward thing where I was like, was saying my goodbyes to everyone like, oh man, good luck with us and them. I gotta, I gotta hit the big time. I'm gonna go be a star now. Oh no, no, I'm still working on the show with the rest of you. Oh, okay. Oh, oh now it's canceled. Now we're all job. Oh, all right. Awkward. That's like when you say bye to someone at a party and then you don't leave and you're still, you're still talking to them. It's exactly like that. <laughs> Oh, and if I can just talk a little bit about the way that you set up your characters to play off of each other. You have a bunch of characters on the show that have kind of opposite personality types, and you partner these opposite or similar personality types into various different adventures. You know, you have your Zoe's and Zelda's episode pretty early on that establishes you're either a, a bright, optimistic character or you're kind of like a like a pessimistic character. You're either uh, you're either Penn and Teller bullshit or you're Adam ruins everything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's super interesting the way that you paired up Bojack with Todd, super depressed with super bright and happy, and also Mr. Peanut Butter, a foil of Bojack, and then Mr. Peanut Butter being paired with the second most depressed character on the show. Mm -hmm. How do you think about and conceptualize all that when you're coming up with a show? You know, my mode for coming up with the world for TV shows, or at least when, when I was developing Bojack, the way I thought about it was, you know, Bojack is the central character. He's kind of the, the middle of the wheel. And then all these other characters kind of spokes on the wheel. So they all need to attach to Bojack in some way. So when I'm creating a new character, really what I'm creating is a new relationship. And I'm thinking, what, what is going to be the most interesting relationship for this main character that I've already established? What kinds of relationships have I not explored through his other relationships? So the relationship really comes first. And then that kind of defines who the character is based on what is their dynamic going to be with Bojack or with each other or with the other characters, right? As the show continued to expand, we added more characters who never interacted with Bojack at all that were just kind of their way in was the Princess Carolyn story or the Diane story. So it is about what, what is going to be the most interesting character to interact with this other character? What story do I want to tell with them? What kind of dynamics are going to come out of that? 
And I, I think a mistake that a lot of younger writers make is they think, well, I got to populate this with interesting characters. And they think about those characters in isolation and they aren't thinking about the ways the characters interact with each other. Because that is how you define character is, is through their interactions. It's not like you can just create a character and add like, a whole bunch of text on the screen. Well, their background was this. This is how they see the world. This is what they do. You know, the way you display what their character is is by the way that they interact with the other characters you already have. So that was really helpful for me in, in devising these characters and, and, and defining this world. Awesome. When you very first conceptualize the character, you think about how they relate to whichever character arc they're going to be interacting with the most initially. And then as you focus more and more screen time on them, and as you focus more other people interacting with them, then you're able to take those characteristics and kind of flesh them out and develop them through their interactions with side characters, other characters. Right. So if they start as spokes on the wheel of Bojack, eventually they become their own wheel and, and they have spokes coming off of them. I mean, that's not really how wheels work, but <laughs> the metaphor is getting a little, a little pushed. Like uh, maybe gears, right? That like a, there's a big gear and then the big gear has like little gears that it's interacting with. Things have to fit together. But then those little gears can have other little gears or sprockets coming off of them. Um, and they kind of uh, hit different pumps and springs. And now you've created this uh, steampunk monstrosity of a show. Hmm. Interesting. And how long did it take into like developing Bojack before you really felt like you knew who these characters were and like why they were funny? I mean, I still feel like we were still finding that in the last season. I mean, I, I think we built characters that evolved and changed and showed us new layers of themselves throughout. And that's kind of the fun thing about making a TV show is you get to live with these characters for a long time and continue to, to grow with them and discover slash create new facets to them and new dynamics. That's something I really enjoy about working on a project for seven years. You live with them and hopefully they evolve and change. I mean, I, I wouldn't want to work on a show that just is static and the dynamics are the same and kind of mm -hmm. you, you figure out what's funny about these characters halfway through the first season and then you just do that over and over and over again. I, I don't I don't think that's very interesting. And I think that that's kind of an old style of television, having these static characters that don't grow very much. We're kind of in the golden age of television right now, and we have the ability to have a character that you grow and develop yeah, for seven years. That's something that is completely not feasible in the past. Right. And I think the reason for that is because people are watching television in a serialized way, in a way that they weren't 20 years ago. TV on DVD was big for that. And then I think streaming television was another huge thing in that, right? That if, if I'm making a show to be streamed, I know the culture of how people watch these shows that people aren't gonna, just going to pick a random episode in the middle of season three because all the episodes are there. They're going to start at the beginning and they're going to move forward. So if I know someone is watching season three episode five, I know they've already seen every episode in season one and every episode mm -hmm. in season two and four episodes in season three. So it's on me to make it new and exciting and interesting. Like I can't just repeat the same dynamics. Whereas if it's on a more traditional network where people do just kind of tune in and tune out, then you kind of lean the other way. You want things that feel understandable and dependable that if people missed a couple episodes, they can still understand what this episode is. It's not too different. The format requires different things of the viewer and of the shows themselves. It's super easy with traditional television to miss four or five episodes. And if main development right. happens in those four or five episodes, you're just going to lose the people that you are watching, it. you know, and it's just not going to exactly. make any sense. So how did the music 
for BoJack come together because both the opening theme and the closing theme are great songs that came from some pretty incredible musicians. You have uh, Patrick Carney doing the the main theme, and you have Group Love doing the the ending theme. So how did how did all that come together? Yeah, they're, they're two amazing songs that have nothing to do with each other. We had this incredible music supervisor, Andy Gowan. He put the word out for, hey, we're looking for some theme music for this show. And we got all these submissions that I couldn't believe. Like some of the, some bands that I'm like a huge fan of, and I'm like talking to the the lead singer over the phone, talking about like what the show's about and how it works. And I guess it's while we were making the first season of the show. So I, I, I was still like starstruck by people. Now I'm like, all right, yeah, famous people. I've seen a bunch of them. Uh, they're just people, no big deal. But at that point I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I got to talk to this person. And then we put together a main title sequence and we had like, like a cook-off where we invited a bunch of the crew in to watch seven or eight different versions of the main title sequence with these different songs. And we voted on which ones we liked the best. The highest vote getters were the, the songs that the Patrick Carney and, and his uncle Ralph Carney made. And then this group love song that people really loved too. And I remember feeling like the group love song wasn't right for the opening credits, that it was so expository. There was like a tongue in cheek quality to it, but the, the, I was worried it would be misread, that it would feel too straightforward. It was like, here's what the show's about and here's how it works. And that it, it, it felt simple in a way that I liked because it kind of harkened back to like old sitcoms from the 80s and 90s. But I was worried people wouldn't get it if we put it at the front. Where meanwhile, the the Patrick Carney song uh, with Ralph Carney was very moody. And I liked what that did to the show. And I felt like that was like a hint because those first few episodes are very fun and silly and they only kind of hint at the darkness to come. Mm -hmm. I feel like that would be a good additional hint that like, oh no, this is a more serious show. And then I don't remember who had the idea to like use the group love song as the end credit music, but I was really excited about that. I love what the song does there. And that because it's so joyful, it kind of has the the opposite effect uh, that a lot of our episodes, especially later in that first season, do kind of end on these downer beats. And then you kick to this group love song. It almost feels taunting in a way. Like it, <laughs> there's like a, a darkness to it, mm-hmm, to the right. comedy and the lightness of it that I think really adds a really fun texture to the end of a lot of episodes. And that what at first feels very light and funny ends up feeling very sad the more times you hear it. So I, I really enjoy the combination of, of those two songs and how they work in different ways at the front and at the end of the episode. Yeah, no, it's like the perfect sandwich. And the the group love song is super (laughs) upbeat and happy. But yeah, you can read in like, oh, God, it's been like 20 years since the 90s. You know, this is still like the the only contribution that I've had. And also like some of the covers that you do with it, like the the Vietnamese cover Mm -hmm. is pretty brilliant. You know, I, I love the whole cast and... I love Alison Brie as well, but I think it's, you know, it's kind of questionable to cast Alison Brie as the first Vietnamese character on a, a, you know, an animated TV show. So kind of how and why did that happen? Um, Well, I've I've talked about this before in detail. So I, uh, if I, if I end up feeling like I'm giving a a short version here or an incomplete version, I I would encourage listeners to to look up some of my other interviews on the subject. I think it is a really important topic that I think merits a a great deal of discussion, and I I don't want to give it short shrift. So basically what happened when we were putting the show together, it all happened very quickly. It was We were kind of a a mad dash to, to make the first season of this television show. And we were casting and names were coming in and we were trying to put the show together. 
Um, and I, I really wanted an Asian actress to play Diane. I thought that was important, but for reasons that I, I couldn't quite put my finger on at the time that I, I feel like I could perhaps articulate better now. But at the time, I just felt like this should be an Asian actress playing this role. And I was met with a, a, a little bit of pushback at the time of like, why, well, why is that important? She's not doing an accent. You know, it's not a poo. It's not uh, a stereotype of an Asian character. You know, it's just an American voice like any other, you know, does it really need to be an Asian actress? Just as far as, you know, do we want to limit ourselves to that while we're casting? You know, we want someone who's amazing. It's a complicated role. We, we don't want to be putting additional limits on ourselves uh, when we're trying to, to do this. But I, at the time I said, no, I, I think this is important. Um, and we had auditions and uh, the auditions were difficult. I think partly because I didn't necessarily know what I was looking for at the time. And I, I don't know if I directed the actresses in the proper way. I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it was a very tricky role. And especially in those first few episodes, she is kind of the straight man. But you, you need someone who can add a little bit of levity to it and who can not make it feel too dry or too straight. Perhaps I, I, I pushed some of the people auditioning in the wrong direction and we were really unhappy with a lot of the auditions that we got. or just didn't feel quite right for, for what we wanted and needed the role to be. But we did find someone. We found um, a great Asian actress who we recorded the first four episodes with. And then she had to go because she was on another show that got picked up and there was a conf contractual conflict. The other show didn't want her being a regular on a show for a rival network. So we lost her. And so now we were four episodes deep and we needed to cast someone immediately. And I made the decision, okay, let's let's open this up to other actresses because I, I, I don't think we can, we can limit ourselves in the same way now because we really need to find someone fast. And then Allison came in and she was amazing. And I think she's done uh, an incredible job with the role. And I think she's brought so much nuance and humor and uh, power to the character in, in a really incredible way. But I, I do regret that we could not have found a, or that I'd say we couldn't, I'll say that we didn't find a Vietnamese actress to play the role. Um, because I think as the seasons progressed, it felt more and more inappropriate. And I, I, I do think that was a misstep on our part. And it is not one that I would uh, repeat if I were making the show now. Thanks uh, for that more detailed explanation. I'd like to recommend a more thorough interview that Raphael gave on the topic of Diane's casting with E. Alex Jung, who's a senior writer at Vulture. Uh, Raphael talks extensively about the topic of Diane's casting, but also about Bojack's casting in general and changes that were made to how Bojack approached casting to increase the diversity of voice talent. You'll want to scroll about halfway down through the interview to find this content, and it's linked in the show notes. If you're really curious about race in Hollywood, I'd recommend listening to Jessica Gao's podcast, Whiting Wongs. Jessica Gao wrote Pickle Rick and has really helped put a lot of things into perspective for me. Now I'd like to talk about some of the nuts and bolts of how BoJack works. The humor in BoJack is very multi-leveled. The joke itself is funny, and then if you kind of get the thinking behind the joke, it's even funnier. Like, for instance, in the first episode, you have a joke about cutting through the Panama Canal instead of going around the horn. And I thought that joke was super hilarious because ships can get caught going through the horn for like a month. It's one of the most difficult things to do as a sailor. And I don't feel like most people would really understand that particular context, but it is 
extremely funny, but you have the super Ivy League looking dude just berating his son for no reason. So I just kind of want to talk about like, why, why do you think things are funny? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I think things are funny um, when they surprise you in some way. I think, you know, a big part of comedy is surprise. And I think sometimes it's a surprise of recognition that you understand things or things were put together in a way that makes sense in a new way. Like I think that joke specifically, I think you recognize this uh, abusive father that his, his son's answer is never going to be enough for him no matter what it is. And this feeling that you shouldn't take shortcuts exaggerated to an insane degree that he believes the Panama Canal is a shortcut and is therefore uh, not <laughs> worth doing, which feels very old fashioned, but not connected to any real sort of political ideology or tradition that I can understand. But you can kind of understand the thought process there. Like if you are someone who doesn't believe in shortcuts and is trying to teach your son a lesson and you hold odd political grudges, this would be an example of something you have maybe never forgiven the Roosevelt administration for because you think it makes us weak <laughs> to, to cut through the Panama Canal instead of you know, going around the horn the way God intended. The little bit of religiosity there is very funny. I think so you, you kind of create this very absurd, strange thing built out of recognizable attributes. And, and the fact that it's not just totally random and out there, but that you can like kind of see the logic to it, I think is what makes it funny. So there's a little bit of recognition and then a little bit of surprise. And you, you put those two things together and you get comedy, baby! Comedy. Pure comedy. I do have a couple of questions about the development of episodes and the, writing is a, sure. a difficult thing to talk about. I was like a music writer for a long time. And there's like a saying that writing about music is dancing about architecture. It's like, if you try uh -huh. to talk about creative processes, sometimes you can, you can get some good insights out, but it's just something that you do. So you got to feel it. My, my question is kind of like, how do you conceptualize, like for instance, times arrow, you know, it's really depressing. It's really fucked up, super hilarious, super witty. You get all these kind of fully fleshed out glimpses of like why the Horseman family is as fucked up as the Horseman family is or Sugarman family is. You know, you address all these different types of mental illnesses and cycles of trauma and you wrap it in jokes to make it consumable. So did you start that episode with let's give background on Bojack's mother? Did you start it with like a let's figure out where Hollyhock's mother is coming from? Kind of how was that conceptualized? How was that... Uh, you do a lot of things at once, right? So that let's talk about that episode specifically. So that episode was written by Kate Purdy. And at that point in making BoJack, Kate and I were already talking about Undone and what we wanted this show to be. And so season four of BoJack, specifically Kate's episodes in that season, which was um, the second episode, The Old Sugarman Place, and the penultimate episode, Time Zero, uh, in some ways became test runs for what we wanted to do with Undone. Of like, can we do this kind of storytelling? Can we jump around in time in this way? Is this going to be disorienting? Or will our audiences be able to kind of piece it together and figure out what's happening? So that was part of it. We want to play around with time. By that point in the show, we kind of established that every penultimate episode of the season was going to be this big, ambitious, wheels-off kind of thing. And so like, we got to do something really big here. But we'd also felt like every penultimate episode up to this point has been Bojack falling to some lower place or doing some greater misdeed. And it felt like we're not going to top what we did in season three. So here in season four, is there a, a new way we can surprise people? You know, can we end this episode on a moment of connection or hope for Bojack or something a little more 
optimistic as a surprise because every other episode 11 has ended in these very bleak places. You know, that's just speaking thematically around kind of what is this episode going to be. We want Bojack to kind of do something very winning at the end of the episode. And we also want to play around with time in some way. You know, we've been playing with Beatrice's mental deterioration all season. Wouldn't it be fun to do an episode from her point of view where we're in her brain and we're kind of seeing her get confused of time and jump around in time. And it's a way to give a lot of exposition and tell a lot about who this character is and her past, but also kind of illuminate what she has been experiencing all season when she's kind of wandered in and out of conversations. We can kind of see what that looks like for her. And that felt like, okay, that feels like a really fun, ambitious kind of way to tell a story. And then we can also solve this mystery of where does Hollyhock come from in this kind of roundabout surprising way where you didn't think it would come from the Beatrice story, mm -hmm. but within the Beatrice story, we're going to explain this. I think by that point, we, we knew what the answer to that mystery was going to be. And we didn't quite know how we were going to show it, but it felt like, oh, this is a, a good opportunity for that. And then from there, I mean, Kate really took the reins of it. I remember she came in uh, one day where she kind of like almost outlined most of the episode before we even had a chance to really talk about it. She just kind of dove in and decided like, I really want to do this thing on the playground with, with the kids. I want to show her going to this debutante ball. And I don't remember if she had the idea to have this like other suitor, Corbin Kramerman, but we, we wanted to, to kind of suggest the path not taken and the life that might have been. And so that felt really exciting in that way. And we also wanted to show what was attractive about Butterscotch, Bojack's father, and then ultimately what was bad about him as well and, and how this marriage ended up feeling like a trap. And so there were a lot of story and emotional ground we wanted to cover. Then we also thought, okay, what are some fun games we can play in this format of like bouncing around and losing memory? And then a lot of that came on the animation side as well. The animators came in and said, okay, we want to, I don't remember if the face scribbles were in the script or if that came from animation or if the blank faces where that came from, but they were just more additive qualities to it. What does it look like to live inside an unstable brain? Brilliantly executed. And now that you've told me that Kate wrote that, that makes a, a lot of sense from seeing the kind of style that she brings to Undone. There's definitely a lot of commonalities with how mental illness is handled and how it's yeah. demonstrated. Yeah. And nonlinear storytelling. Lisa, is she mostly responsible for a lot of the visual gags or is that kind of something that's discussed in the writer's room? For instance, there's one episode, like I just kept on laughing so much at the stuff that was going on in the background. You had like a burger restaurant that was a David Hasselhoff trying to eat the hamburger off the floor, mm -hmm. um, which is the most hilarious viral video ever. And his lawyers got it completely deleted from the internet. And then later on, there is this gag about this Damien Hurst piece not being able to sell for like 400 bucks at an auction. And Damien Hurst is like the most talentless hack piece of shit. I fucking hate him. And I thought that oh that particular <laughs> joke was also super hilarious. And these are both just things going on in the background you know, just subtle, just waiting for people to catch them. So, I mean, the floor burgers joke particularly was for the episode where you had a flashback to 2007. So I think in that episode, everyone was looking for like, what were the events in 2007? What were the things that people were talking about? And let's overload this episode with 2007 references. I guess we can call the background jokes. They come from two different places, really. A lot of them come from Lisa and her team of designers. And then a lot of them come from the storyboard artists and animators who play out the action of the show. A good rule of thumb, which isn't always 
always the case is that if a joke involves moving characters, that came from the storyboarders and the directors. And if it's like something in the background, like a poster or a menu or something, that came from the designers. But occasionally the animators will throw in a joke into a storyboard that's so funny that the designers will incorporate into their designs, or the designers will draw something that the animators decide they want to have some fun with, or the writers will come up with a joke and they'll write it directly into the script. Cool. For the episode Fish Out of Water, I know that the guy that wrote that, Jordan Young, he was an animator and storyboard artist before he started writing. It was Jordan Young and Elijah Aaron who wrote that episode. They were a writing team. But yes, Jordan was an animator. How did the development for that differ from a normal episode? Because that's almost entirely visual gags. Oh, greatly. Yeah. Um, so that was, I mean, specifically, I wanted Elijah uh, and Jordan to write that episode because of Jordan's animation experience. And I thought he would bring an understanding of how characters move into his writing in a really helpful way. But the story, we kind of broke like any other story. I mean, we outlined it like a regular episode. We thought about what is the what are the emotional beats here? What is the story we're telling? What are the character dynamics? And then, okay, how do we tell the story without dialogue, including what are some fun visual gags or character physicality that we can play with? And then Jordan and Elijah wrote up an outline, and then the outline <laughs> didn't change much to get to the script because there was no dialogue to add. But they tried to format it like a script, and they tried to give every moment its space in the script like you would a line of dialogue. And then Mike Collinsworth, their supervising director, decided he wanted to direct that episode himself. And he tried to time it out because, you know, normally we do like table reads or we put together like a radio play with all the voices, you get a sense of how long the episode is going to be. But with this one, there were no voices. So we didn't want to like animate a bunch of stuff. We're going to have to like, you know, end up cutting out of the episodes. We had to be really precise over how long the script was. And so Mike sat with the script and he kind of imagined it beat by beat and timed himself and figured out, okay, we actually have one sequence too many here. We can cut the sequence. And so there was a whole restaurant sequence that we cut out of the episode because we didn't need it. And it would have been a waste of time to try to animate that whole sequence only to realize later, whoa, this episode's way too long. A lot of that episode came from the magic of, of the animation and this incredible expressive character that our, our designers and animators had built. And then also the score um, by Jesse Novak, who, who creates this lush, beautiful world that we're swimming around with for 25 minutes. The brief bits of dialogue in that episode just set up so many visual gags that are played yeah. out for the rest of the show. And there's so many jokes that have payoff in that episode. Like Mr. Peanut Butter has his overseas ads that he films the season mm -hmm. before, and then yeah. that actually pays off. You have a lot of jokes, both in BoJack and then also in the book that you wrote, which make really good use of repetition. The repetition is very funny. Like one thing that comes to mind is the the flailing and the lamentations and um, uh -huh. such from the, the demon wedding story you wrote. That particular line, the more times you say it, the funnier it gets. I've also written some plays that have quite a bit of repetition in them where I thought that the repetition was going to play off like that Simpsons rake gag where Sideshow Bob uh -huh. keeps stepping on the rakes and they keep hitting him in the face. Um, but it didn't. It just came off really cringy. So I'm wondering <laughs> what makes repetition funny? Like what makes it work and what makes it not work? That's a great question. I think the, you know, the main thing is you want a little bit of variety in your repetition. It shouldn't be the exact same thing used in the exact same way every time. And sometimes the repetition is what makes it funny because you're trying to express a new thing, but you're tripping over yourself because you're saying this phrase that you've already said, you know, a dozen other times. You just have to get past it 
to kind of keep moving to what your actual point is. I mean, I, I really enjoy comedy of repetition, but I, yeah, I think it's very hard to do a good rake gag. That requires faith from your audience that you know what you're doing. That can't be the first joke you do. Like if you've made your audience laugh a bunch, if they think they're in good hands, then they're gonna go with you for those weirder, more indulgent moments because they already know, oh, this person's a funny person. This show is a funny show. This makes me laugh. I'm enjoying this. If you have not proven yourself yet, then those moments feel amateurish. They feel like, oh, this person doesn't know what they're mm -hmm. doing. They're just doing the same thing over and over again. And that's, I think, a lot of anti-comedy or ironically bad comedy fails flat because it's done by people who have not proven themselves otherwise. So it, yeah. it doesn't feel like, oh, this is intentionally bad, therefore it is funny. It just feels like, oh, this is bad. And I think yeah. some people, especially when you're beginning, can use that as a crutch or they don't have faith in themselves to make actual good comedy. So they try to lean on tropes or lean on things they know are not funny, but they do it ironically in the hopes that that will make it funny. But I think that is a good way in to kind of examine what you think is funny and, and what your style is. But I think there's a, a danger in that. And I think you're not going to find as much success with that as you find really actually putting yourself out there and, and doing things you actually think are funny, not just doing things that are funny because they are so not funny. I think that is a hard thing to pull off unless you've already yeah. proven yourself. And the thing about proving yourself, like, I like the Eric Andre show now, but the first time I saw it, I didn't get it. And now I think it's super hilarious because mm -hmm. I trust him that his jokes are going to be funny. Right. But it took a little while to build that up. So I totally see what you're saying there. What do you think makes a character likable? Also, what do you think you should do to shitty characters to make audiences sympathize with them more? Well, I think vulnerability is really important in any character. Likeability, I, I think, is a, a difficult phrase uh, that is used a lot in Hollywood. And I think sometimes people don't necessarily understand what people are asking for. Because I, I do think that characters should be likable to an audience. But the reasons we like characters are not the same reasons why we like people that we would want to be friends with or work with or be in our family. I mean, we like characters who are interesting. So I think your character needs to be interesting. A nice character who is not interesting is not a very good character. But I also think like a mean acerbic character who is not interesting is not a very good character. You want your character to be interesting and surprising and not feel like a trope of a character we've seen a hundred times before. And I think you want us to understand what your character wants and what your character's wounds are in what ways your character is vulnerable. Even if they don't show that easily, you want your audience to be able to understand that. That is why we like characters is when we understand them and we can find ways to root for them even if they are very different from us and, and, and not mm -hmm. going about things in the way that maybe we think they should or that we would. If we can understand why they are the way they are and what they are trying to accomplish and what they are missing, I think that helps us like them. Awesome. Undone, for anyone that hasn't watched Undone that's a fan of BoJack, you need to watch this. Undone, just like, what the actual fuck is that show? I've never had a show <laughs> that made me like, grip my face and send shivers down my spine and just be like, what the hell is going on? And have me care about the characters and have it be cohesive at the same time. And it's so visually stunning. It's obviously inspired by waking life, including the car crash that precipitates the mental breakdown. How do you approach making a cohesive avant-garde narrative? 
you know, in some ways, it kind of goes back to what I was just saying. We had built the confidence in ourselves, me and Kate, but also in our audience. And that if you sell a show from the people who brought you BoJack Horseman, that says things about the show and creates some expectation in people that allow you to do things that I think would have been difficult if this was like my first show. Both difficult in selling it to the network and then also in selling it to the audience. Um, mm -hmm. I think of all my work in some ways as being a bridge to weirder stuff. And that BoJack, you know, when I was first starting it, I felt like I had to conform a little bit to kind of the norms of adults animation, but I also wanted to challenge those norms a little bit and do some more interesting things. Now living in a post Bojack world can take things a little farther. And I think undone, I wasn't interested in just doing what I already did with Bojack. I thought, okay, let's use Bojack as a bridge and go a little farther. And, you know, part of the pitch for it was Kate wrote episode 11 of the first season of Bojack, which was a very weird, trippy, experimental episode of Bojack at the time. And kind of the question for Undone is, what if you didn't have to wait a whole season to get to that? What if you started there and then kept going? And that was that weirdness and trippiness was the foundation. Um, mm -hmm. And it felt like we built to that with Bojack and now we could keep building from there. But even then, I will say also... But to answer your question of like, how do you go about, you know, writing things that are a little more experimental or avant-garde, but even then we wanted to ground it in character and relationships and real emotion. And mm -hmm. that maybe you don't necessarily understand what is happening all the time, but we wanted you to understand the emotion and we wanted to firmly ground this character and her relationships. So even while all this trippy stuff is going on, there is a thread that you are following, which is her as a character and her relationships with the other people in her life. Yeah, and she's a fantastic character that is fucked up at times, but definitely someone that you can really relate with and ask yourself a lot of questions about whether what's happening to her is really happening or whether she's just mentally ill. And if anyone has experienced something like that, it's extremely relatable. Why do you think that rotoscoping hasn't caught on that much? I had someone tell me, that the software for rotoscoping has gotten a lot more accessible in the last couple of years. Do you think it's just the barrier to entry on it? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you why it hasn't gone on. Now that having done a show with rotoscoped animation, it's incredibly difficult and time consuming and requires a lot of talent. <laughs> like the joke, it's like take the most difficult parts of doing a live action show and combining it with the most difficult parts of doing an animated show. So there's some ways in which making an animated show is more attractive and some ways in which making a live action show is more attractive. And rotoscoping has none of those, except it looks amazing. And I think for our show, I, I can't imagine another way of doing it. And I love how special it makes the show and what our artists bring to it and what our actors bring to it. And it's such a cool thing, but it's really tricky and it takes a lot of time and a lot of talent. And it's a, it's a slow process. But I think even then the technology and the process is, is changing as we make the show because there are so few rotoscopy projects, everyone is an opportunity to kind of revolutionize the process a little bit. Mm -hmm. And this I think is like the biggest rotoscoping project there's ever been because it's, you know, we made uh, eight episodes the first season, which is more than any movie has, has ever done in, in yeah. rotoscopy. That is the length of combination of uh, Waking Life and A Scandard Arkley put together. Put together, yeah. yeah. And so I, I think even in the kind of the regularity of like, okay, we're making one episode after the other after the other, it's given us room to kind of continue to change the process. And uh, Tommy Pallotta is our executive producer and he's our expert as far as the rotoscoping goes. 
And he would say things like when making the first episode, like, oh, you can't have these kinds of patterns or you should use those kinds of patterns or that doesn't matter. And then by episode six being like, actually, we have this new system of doing things where now we don't like those kinds of patterns, but we do like these kinds of patterns. And that was really crazy to see like how much had changed just in the process of making this one season of television. And I think it'll continue to change as we're making season two. And now as we're talking about, okay, what are the limitations placed upon us by this isolation and this quarantine? And can we still make the show? In what ways can we make the show? And how can this rotoscoping process help us make the show in a different way than we made it last season? So that's really exciting. That is really, really exciting. Um, so I, I still have more questions, but I, I know that you've given me uh, a lot of time. So I think that we should probably wrap this up. We'll have to um, just, do a follow-up some other time. That would be that would be amazing. Uh, I'm really excited to see what's happening on Undone Season 2, because there's such a cliffhanger, and I don't know where you're going to take that. So uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in seeing what, what's happening with that. Just really quick, uh, before we go, what what is a book that you would recommend that the audience read? I mean, one of my favorite books growing up was The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Jester. It really influenced my sensibility and my sense of humor. I think it's so clever and so wonderful and such a wonderful story about the importance of looking around and keeping your eyes open and what an uh, amazing world we live in and, and the importance of being clever and curious and brave. Anyone who hasn't read it, I think even as an adult, it, it holds up. You can read it in one afternoon. It's is that the one that has the world's shortest tall man and the world's tallest short man? Yes. Yes, it is. Cool. I'll give it another read. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Raphael. This has been a fascinating Thank conversation. You. What, what a treat for me. Go back through memory lane. <laughs> so, Raphael, Bob Waxberg is definitely my kind of folk. And I hope you all have a beautiful afternoon. My Kind of Folks is an Adam Alloy production. Music provided generously by the amazing Mr. Tony Bianchini. Artwork by Pablito Something. If you've enjoyed our show, please subscribe and follow us on all social media channels at My Kind of Folks. We've got some amazing guests coming up for you this season, so stay tuned. Stay safe.